0: Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 128 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, throughout the even-numbered episodes of this season, we have been going through The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. If you hadn't had an opportunity to listen... The last time we were in this book, episode 126, go ahead and do so. But essentially, at this point in the story, we have experienced the East Egg party life, the old money party life, which is very closed, very invite only, very private, very small, very um, blackout drunk and bemoan our marital affairs type of party. So let's contrast that now here at the beginning of chapter three with a West Egg party, a Gadsby party. Finally, we may actually meet the man three chapters in. Who knows? But um, at this point, I mean, these are very open. These are very carefree. Gadsby himself probably doesn't even know how many people are atten- in attendance of his party, and he doesn't see half of them anyway. So I'm sure he wouldn't mind if we crash this party as well, vicariously, through the life of our friend and narrator, Nick Carraway. The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald Chapter 3 Part 1 There was music from my neighbor's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars. At high tide in the afternoon, I watched his guests diving from the tower of his raft or taking the sun on the hot sand of his beach, while his two motorboats slit the waters of the Sound, drawing aquaplanes over cataracts of foam. On weekends, his Rolls Royce became an omnibus bearing parties to and from the city between nine in the morning and long past midnight, while his station wagon scampered like a brisk yellow bug to meet all trains. And on Mondays, eight servants, including an extra gardener, toiled all day with mops and scrubbing brushes and hammers and garden shears, repairing the ravages of the night before. Every Friday, five crates of oranges and lemons arrived from a fruiterer in new york every monday these same oranges and lemons left his back door in a pyramid of pulpless halves there was a machine in the kitchen which could extract the juice of 200 oranges in half an hour if a little button was pressed 200 times by a butler's thumb at least once a fortnight A corps of caterers came down with several hundred feet of canvas and enough gathered lights to make a Christmas tree of Gadsby's enormous garden. On buffet tables, garnished with glistening hors d'oeuvres, spiced baked hams crowded against salads of harlequin designs and pastry pigs and turkeys, bewitched to a dark gold. In the main hall, a bar with a real brass rail was set up, and stocked with gins and liquors, and with cordials so long forgotten that most of his female guests were too young to know one from another. By seven o'clock, the orchestra had arrived. No thin five-piece affair, but a whole pitful of oboes and trombones and saxophones and viols and cornets and piccolos and low and high drums. The last swimmers have come in from the beach now, and are dressing upstairs. The cars from New York are parked five deep in the drive, and already the halls and salons and verandas are gaudy with primary colors, and hair bobbed in strange new ways, and shawls beyond the dreams of Castile. The bar is in full swing, and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside until the air is alive with chatter and laughter and casual innuendo and introductions forgotten on the spot and enthusiastic meetings between women who never knew each other's names. The lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun. And now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music and the opera of voices pitches a key higher. Laughter is easier minute by minute Spilled with prodigality, tipped out at a cheerful word, the groups change more swiftly, swell with new arrivals, dissolve in form, in the same breath. Already there are wanderers, confident girls, who weave here and there among the stouter and more stable, become for a sharp, joyous moment the center of a group, and then, excited with triumph glide on through the sea change of faces and voices and color under the constantly changing light. Suddenly, one of these gypsies, in trembling opal, seizes a cocktail out of the air, dumps it down for courage, and, moving her hands like Frisco, dances out alone on the canvas platform. A momentary hush. The orchestra leader varies his rhythm obligingly for her, and there is a burst of chatter As the erroneous news goes round that she is Gilda Gray's understudy from the Follies, the party has begun. I believe that on the first night I went to Gadsby's house, I was one of the few guests who had actually been invited. People were not invited. They went there. They got into automobiles which bore them out to Long Island, and somehow they ended up at Gatsby's door. Once there, they were introduced by somebody who knew Gatsby. And after that, they conducted themselves according to the rules of behavior associated with an amusement park. Sometimes they came and went without having met Gatsby at all. Came for the party with a simplicity of heart that it was its own ticket of admission. I had been actually invited. A chauffeur in a uniform of Robin's Egg Blue crossed my lawn early that Saturday morning with a surprisingly formal note from his employer. The honor would be entirely Gatsby's, it said, if I would attend his quote-unquote little party that night. He had seen me several times and had intended to call on me long before but a peculiar combination of circumstances had prevented it. Signed, J. Gadsby, in a majestic hand. Dressed up in white flannels, I went over to his lawn a little after seven and wandered around rather ill at ease among swirls and eddies of people. I didn't know, though here and there there was a face I had noticed on the commuting train. I was immediately struck by the number of young Englishmen dotted about, all well-dressed, all looking a little hungry, and all talking in low, earnest voices to solid and prosperous Americans. I was sure that they were selling something. Bonds or insurance or automobiles. They were at least agonizingly aware of the easy money in the vicinity and convinced that it was theirs for a few words in the right key. As soon as I arrived, I made an attempt to find my host, but the two or three people of whom I had asked his whereabouts stared at me in such an amazed way, and denied so vehemently any knowledge of his movements that I slunk off in the direction of the cocktail table, the only place in the garden where a single man could linger without looking purposeless and alone. I was on my way to get roaring drunk from sheer embarrassment when Jordan Baker came out of the house and stood at the head of the marble steps, leaning a little backward and looking with contemptuous interest down into the garden. Welcome or not, I found it necessary to attach myself to someone before I should begin to address cordial remarks to the passers by. Hello! I roared advancing toward her. My voice seemed unnaturally loud across the garden. "'I thought you might be here,' she responded absently as I came up. "'I remembered you lived next door to—' She held my hand impersonally, as a promise that she'd take care of me in a minute, and gave ear to two girls in twin yellow dresses who stopped at the foot of the steps. "'Hello!' They cried together. Sorry you didn't win. That was for the golf tournament. She had lost in the finals the week before. You don't know who we are, said one of the girls in yellow. But we met you here about a month ago. You've dyed your hair since then, remarked Jordan. And I started, but the girls had moved casually on, and her remark was addressed to the premature moon. "'produced like the supper, no doubt out of a caterer's basket. "'With Jordan's slender golden arm resting in mine, "'we descended the steps and sauntered about the garden. "'A tray of cocktails floated at us through the twilight, "'and we sat down at a table with the two girls in yellow and three men, "'each one introduced to us as Mr. Mumble. "'Do you come to these parties often?' inquired Jordan of the girl beside her. The last one was the one I met you at, answered the girl in an alert, confident voice. She turned to her companion. Wasn't it for you too, Lucille? It was for Lucille too. I like to come, Lucille said. I never care what I do, so I always have a good time. When I was here last, I tore my gown on a chair and he asked me my name and address. Inside of a week, I got a package from Croyer's with a new evening gown in it. Did you keep it? asked Jordan. Sure I did. I was going to wear it tonight, but it was too big in the bust and had to be altered. It was gas blue with lavender beads. Two hundred and sixty-five dollars. There's something funny about a fellow that'll do a thing like that said the other girl eagerly. He doesn't want any trouble with anybody. Who doesn't? I inquired. Gadsby, somebody told me. The two girls in Jordan leaned together confidentially. Somebody told me they thought he killed a man once. A thrill passed over all of us. The three, Mr. Mumbles bent forward and listened eagerly. "'I don't think it's so much that,' argued Lucille skeptically. "'It's more that he was a German spy during the war.' One of the men nodded in confirmation. "'I heard that from a man who knew all about him. Grew up with him in Germany,' he assured us positively. "'Oh, no,' said the first girl. "'It couldn't be that.' because he was in the American army during the war. As our credulity switched back to her, she leaned forward with enthusiasm. You look at him sometimes when he thinks nobody's looking at him. I'll bet he killed a man. She narrowed her eyes and shivered. Lucille shivered. We all turned and looked around for Gadsby. It was testimony to the romantic speculation he inspired, that there were whispers about him from those who found little that it was necessary to whisper about in this world. The first supper, there would be another one after midnight, was now being served, and Jordan invited me to join her own party, who were spread around on a table at the other side of the garden. There were three married couples and Jordan's escort— a persistent undergraduate given to violent innuendo and obviously under the impression that sooner or later jordan was going to yield him up her person to a greater or lesser degree instead of rambling this party had preserved a dignified homogeneity and assumed to itself the function of representing the staid nobility of the countryside east egg condescending to west egg and carefully on guard against its spectroscopic gaiety. Let's get out, whispered Jordan, after a somehow wasteful and inappropriate half hour. This is much too polite for me. We got up, and she explained that we were going to find the host. I had never met him, she said, and it was making me uneasy. The undergraduate nodded in a cynical, melancholy way. The bar where we glanced first was crowded, But Gadsby was not there. She couldn't find him from the top of the steps, and he wasn't on the veranda. On a chance, we tried an important-looking door and walked into a high Gothic library, paneled with a carved English oak, and probably transported complete from some Bruin overseas. A stout, middle-aged man with an enormous owl-eyed spectacles was sitting somewhat drunk on the edge of a great table staring with unsteady concentration at the shelves of books. As we entered, he wheeled excitedly around and examined Jordan from head to foot. What do you think? He demanded impetuously. About what? He waved his hand toward the bookshelves. About that. As a matter of fact, you needn't bother to ascertain. I ascertain. They're real. The books? He nodded. Absolutely real. Have pages and everything. I thought they'd be a nice, durable cardboard. Matter of fact, they're absolutely real. Pages and... Here, let me show you. Taking our skepticism for granted, he rushed to the bookcases and returned with Volume 1 of the Stoddard Lectures. "'See!' he cried triumphantly. "'It's a bonafide piece of printed matter, and it fooled me. This fella's a regular Belasco. It's a triumph. What thoroughness! What realism!' Knew when to stop, too. Didn't cut the pages. But what do you want? What do you expect?' He snatched the book from me and replaced it hastily on its shelf, muttering that if one brick was removed, the whole library was liable to collapse. "'Who brought you?' he demanded. "'Or did you just come? I was brought. Most people were brought.' Jordan looked at him alertly, cheerfully, without answering. "'I was brought by a woman named Roosevelt,' he continued. "'Mrs. Claude Roosevelt. Do you know her? I met her somewhere last night. I've been drunk for about a week now, and I thought it might sober me up to sit in a library. Has it?' "'A little bit, I think. I can't tell yet. I've only been here an hour. "'Did I, uh, tell you about the books?' They're real, there you told us we shook hands with him gravely and went back outdoors. There was dancing now on the canvas in the garden, old men pushing young girls backwards in eternal, graceless circles, superior couples holding each other torturously, fashionably, and keeping in the corners, and a great number of single girls dancing individually or relieving the orchestra for a moment of the burden of the banjo or the traps. By midnight, the hilarity had increased. A celebrated tenor had sung in Italian, and a notorious contralto had sung in jazz, and between the numbers, people were doing stunts all over the garden, while happy, vacuous bursts of laughter rose toward the summer sky. A pair of stage twins who turned out to be the girls in yellow, did a baby act in costume, and champagne was served in glasses bigger than finger bowls. The moon had risen higher, and floating in the sound was a triangle of silver scales, trembling a little to the stiff, tinny drip of the banjos on the lawn. End of Chapter 3, Part 1 of... The Great Gatsby, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh my, where to begin? Well, I was internally screaming during this entire reading because, as a well-documented introvert and empath, this was probably the most terrifying chapter for me to read, and the stuff of my nightmares. A room full of people that I am forced to interact with on a social level does not seem appealing to me whatsoever. For if I was invited to Gatsby's party and I received this invitation and was like, Mr. Gatsby cordially invites you to attend his little party, I would add, in the library, as in an addendum. And then I would initial it, date it, and sign it like a contract. So that if Mr. Gatsby never saw me at that party that day and he saw me the next day, And he's like, hey man, where were you? What's with the program? I invited you to this party so I could get to know you. I would pull out my copy of the invitation, because you better believe I'm going to have a copy of that thing, and I would point out where I modified his invitation to show, in fact, the specific location where a sane person would be during this time. And the only sane people that were at that party were Jordan Baker, Nick Carraway, and our good friend affectionately known as Mr. Owl-Eyes. Now, Mr. Owl-Eyes is a very curious character because he has been drunk for an entire week and finds himself attempting to sober up while in a library, an excellent detoxification location. Now, he notes a few things about the books that he is glossing over in his drunken state. One of which is he pulls the book Stoddard's Lectures, Volume 1. Fascinating read, if you've ever had the opportunity. I'm just kidding. I've never read that book. Um, But Stoddard, in case you were wondering, was a man who was a racist, eugenicist, sided with the central powers during World War I. But that's beside the point. He was also a world-renowned traveler. And a very famous lecturer, he would go to different theaters and such and talk about his exploits around the world. People found that somehow entertaining. And it was also, if you owned a copy of these books, you were considered a well-cultured person. The fact, also, that Gatsby purchased these books and never read them is evident, though, because, Mr. Owl Eyes notes, that these books are uncut, And that just means that, allegedly, when people would buy these books, they would buy them um, bound in, like, cloth or paper. And then the idea was you would bind them yourself in, like, leather or have somebody bind them in leather after you purchased them to make them look more appealing and desirable. But the pages themselves were uncut. I'm presuming so that the pages wouldn't blow away. Well before they were bound and that sort of thing and then you would slide a knife in between two pages pull up and you know separate two pages from one another as you were reading through the book you could easily hire somebody to do that for you but i don't think gatsby even gave a care he just wanted people to know that he owned these well-cultured books from a yale man and so um basically mr owl is calling him out at this point you know, it's kind of like, you know, you, you have some really, like, intelligent-looking books on your bookshelf. And then you just so happen to find the dude that's read that book. And he's like, oh, my gosh. You've you've read this? What'd you think of it? And I'm like, you know, I was a little confused on this portion. Um, could you expound on what you thought of Chapter 3? And then hope they, like, came up with something that you could, like, bounce your ideas off of at that point. But... Mr. Owl Eyes calls him out. And then, uh, you know, we're basically getting a little bit of intrusion into Gatsby's life. He is a man of show. Um, Marked also as Mr. Owl Eyes says, Oh, this guy's a modern-day Belasco. Well, who was Belasco? Glad you asked. He was a set designer, a very famous set designer for stages. And so basically... Mr. Owl Eyes is also calling Gatsby a, uh, a showman, you know? Somebody who just, like, is not really trying to... Is just trying to give off appearances inauthentic. And so... That's kind of what we're gathering from this part of the story. We haven't actually met Gadsby at this point. We know he's either a German spy or an American soldier, but one thing we do know is he fought in World War I and never read any of Stoddard's volumes. So, with that all being said, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite Phil Olson, And as they say in showbiz, that's all he wrote. Tune in next week as we continue through the casebook of Sherlock Holmes with a new case. The Case of the Creeping Man.